After last week, I received a little bit of pushback from all you who like to start Christmas music before. It's legal now, right? So you should be good. This morning we're starting a a four-part series on Advent, or the coming of Christ at this time of year, this season. We're going to be looking at four different passages from the book of Isaiah. This morning we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But in order to sort of set some context, I'm actually going to read to you the first four verses of the book of Isaiah chapter 1. So I say to you, hear the word of God. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Merry Christmas. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would come during this Advent season and that you would come in the person of Christ by his spirit. You would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that um, this would be a time of hope. This would be a time of renewed uh, vigor in people's relationship with you. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Christ's name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. Well, it is the first week of Advent, and so it it sort of demands an Advent-oriented question. And so basically, I'm going to put something on the, on the screen, and I want you to fill in the blank for me, okay? So today's question, blank is the reason for the season. Mm. Now, I have to tread carefully here. I was telling my wife because I don't want to ruin some of your wardrobes at Christmas season. A lot of us, the first thing that comes to our mind is what when we see that? Jesus is the reason for this season, right? Now, part of that is, I think, because reason and season rhyme and Jesus sort of sounds like that. That's cool. But is Jesus really the reason for the season? See, here's the thing. Jesus might be the the, I, wrote, I use my thesaurus. Jesus might be the substitute of the, of the season, the center of the season, the focus of the season, the seed or the root of the season. He might even be the plenipotentiary of the season. But is he the reason for the season? And the answer is not really. What then, if Jesus isn't the reason for the season, what's the reason for the season? Well, the answer is sin. Sin is the reason for the season. Now, you could still wear your sweaters because we know what you mean. But at the end of the day, the reason that we have this season called Advent is because of our sin. In in other words, one way to put it is we are the reason for the season. Right? Say that to to your neighbors. Right? Hey, want to come to church? Why? Because you're the reason for the season. But it really, if you think about it, 
that, that we are so broken in our sin, we are so guilty in our sin, that God had to come get us. That's what Advent is about. That God had to come get us in the person and work of Jesus. That, that it's because of our brokenness and sin that we have this whole season. Now, Jesus is the one who actuates it, or Jesus is the one that catalyzes it. He's the one that actually makes it all happen. But it's because of our sin, and it was so bad and so grievous that we could, there's no way we could have worked our way to God. There's no way we could have been good enough. There's no way we would have thought of it. God had to come and get us. And because of that, we have this season called Advent. This year, as we celebrate Advent, as we do every year, what Advent is about, very simply, the word Advent means coming. And so when we celebrate Advent, we are celebrating the coming of Christ, not only in the past, right? Jesus came in the past and saved us, his first Advent. He, came, he, he will come in the future to finally and completely and utterly save us. And by His Spirit, right now, He is saving us. During Advent, we celebrate all three of those, the past, the present, and the future. It's sort of like the Christmas carol, right? And so we celebrate the past, the present, and the future. This year, we're doing it through the book of Isaiah. And it's interesting because people oftentimes, you know, I don't want to show of hands, but if you're a Bible reader, a lot of times we sort of avoid the prophets, or when you're reading the prophets, it's like, you know, you're just sort of wading through it because it's, they're often confusing. So one thing to keep in mind as we look at Isaiah is that when you think about any prophet, what a prophet is trying to do is persuade you of something, trying to persuade you to, 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 to do something. Typically, the prophet is trying to persuade you either of God's judgment and your need to repent or of God's grace and the fact that he wants you. He wants you to come, repent and come back to him. And so when you look at the book of Isaiah, basically Isaiah is almost evenly split between these topics or these themes of judgment and of grace. And in some sense, Isaiah sets, the, the reason I read you chapter 1 is because chapter 1 starts with judgment and chapter 2 starts with grace. It's almost like he wants you to know the whole book is going to be about these two themes. In Isaiah, you sort of have one vision of humanity that is left unto itself, one vision of humanity that relies on itself, that relies on its own works, that relies on its own goodness. And if you read through the book of Isaiah, you'll often see Israel sort of striving to be good and striving to impress God with their religion and how great they are. And God's response to it pretty simply is, I hate that stuff. It stinks. All of your sacrifices that you're burning, they stink to me. I don't like that. So on one hand, you have this vision of humanity that's left unto itself for judgment and, and all those things. On the other hand, you have a vision of humanity that is saved from itself, that's restored and that's redeemed. And more than any other prophetic book, Isaiah gives us this book not only of a restored, redeemed humanity, but a restored and redeemed creation where the glory of the Lord covers all the earth. So as you read the book of Isaiah, you're, you're sort of, in some ways, I read it and I feel like... I, I can only speak for myself. I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever done something when you were a kid that was so grievous and your parents were sort of arguing over what should happen, right? Maybe you wrecked a car or did something like that and, you know, one parent's arguing for the death penalty and the other, other parents are arguing for a little bit more gracious treatment. That's sort of somehow at times how you feel when you're looking at the book of Isaiah. But what's interesting is you're looking at the book of Isaiah, what happens is these glimpses appear of Messiah, these glimpses of the one who would come, who is going to, to make things right. 
And so that's what we're going to be looking at over these next four weeks. This morning is going to be more general, but we're going to look at three things as we talk about Advent. Basically, as you think about Advent, Advent is about, in this passage at least, it's about expectation, it's about invitation, and it's about restoration. Right? So you think about Advent, the coming of Jesus, either at his, at his first coming or his second coming, or even right now, it's about expectation, it's about invitation, and it's about restoration. So what is, let's look first at expectation, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that to you of chapter 2. It says, The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. I'll read you the three. And many people shall come to it saying, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. So we think about expectation here. Notice verse one, it says that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Jerusalem and Judah. In other words, he could have heard something from God, tell them this, but instead he actually sees something. He sees this, a, a vision of something, and what Isaiah sees is a vision, really, of his future, but it's sort of, of, of our past and our future. And one thing to keep in mind when you read the prophets in, in the Old Testament is the prophets in the Old Testament, when they thought of Messiah, they only thought of one coming. It might have been one coming with several iterations, but they didn't think, wow, this is what the first coming of Messiah is going to be, and this is what the second coming is. That, that wouldn't even have crossed their mind. So in Isaiah, what he's thinking in his mind is when Messiah comes, here's the expectation. Here's what it's going to look like. Here's, here's the kinds of things that are going to happen. And notice the first thing, how do we know he's even talking about the Messiah? It, because he says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Right? If, you want to, if you want to talk about history in the Old Testament, you use the word days. Right? These are the days of the kings of Israel. These are the days of Solomon, or these are the days of David. And what they mean by that is these are, this is the history of David, or this is the history of the kings of Israel. And so when they say this is, this is when Isaiah looks out and he says it shall come to pass in the latter days, what he's saying is the, the last days or the, the end of history, what's going to happen is this. Here's the expectation for the end of history. In, in, in the Hebrew mind, at the end of history, how that would be ushered in would be with the Messiah or by the Messiah. That when Messiah comes, that's when the end starts. And when Jesus came the first time, when he came and he was born of the Virgin Mary and he was laid in that manger, that's when the clock started ticking. In other words, Isaiah looked forward and saw that. We look back and see that. But that's when the last times, the last days, the, the, the latter days started happening. In Isaiah's mind, it was one big event. First, first coming, second coming, that one thing is going to happen. And Messiah, when he comes, here's what the expectation is. And what is the expectation that he lays out? He says, First of all, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills. Now, if, right, if you, I don't know how to write, I mean, I'd have to look it up, I guess. I don't know how to write LOL in Hebrew, but that's sort of what you should be thinking there. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of all of the mountains. You know how the high the mountain of the house of the Lord is in re, real life? It's 2,500 feet. 
Mount Rainier is about 14,400, if I believe. Mount Hood is about 11,000. They give you some kind of scale. And what Isaiah is saying, the mountain of the house of the Lord, every single mountain in the world is going to be lower than that mountain. This mountain, the lowest of all mountains, is going to be elevated above all the mountains. That it's going to be the, the king of all the mountains, if you will. And what he's basically saying here is the mountain of the house of the Lord, this place where God dwells, is going to be the greatest. That one of the expectations that you see when Messiah comes is that which is humble will be exalted. That which is lowly will be lifted up. You see that happening over and over again. Jesus says that over and over again. Who's, who is going to be first? Well, it's the, the one who is the last. Who is going to be exalted? It's the one who is humble. And so we see that kind of thing. But also there's a bit of exclusivity here. Because he's saying all of the mountains, that the, there's one mountain where the nations are going to come. In other words, it's not a, a bunch of different mountains. As long as you go to a mountain, God's going to be cool with that. Because in the, in the ancient Near East, during the time of the prophets, everyone sort of picked a mountain, and that's where their God lived. And Isaiah basically is saying that if, when Messiah comes, he is going to make it so that this mountain is the only mountain that you can come to. It is the big mountain. I don't know if you remember, one of my favorite shows of all time is Highlander. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I made it bunch of elders watched the movie during our last Presbytery meeting. Um, but there, there's a movie, of course, Highlander. And then there's a television series that was a Highlander. If you remember, basically these immortals that, that are going through time and they're sort of winnowing the flock. And at the end, they, whenever they face each other with swords, what do they say to each other? There can be only what? Right? There can be only one. That they sort of battle through time. So at the end of time, there can be only one. Only one left who will rule over all the rest of them. And what Isaiah is saying here of the mountain of the house of God is not that there, there can be only one. He's saying there will be only one. There will be one way to, to approach God and to have a relationship with him. And that might sound exclusive until you read the next verse. Who... who, who to, who can climb this mountain? Who can, be, who, can make the, who can avail themselves of the word of God on this mountain? Notice he says that all nations shall flow to it. In other words, what he's saying here is that the, the, the grace of God draws in all nations. That has always been the plan of God since the beginning of time. Remember, the, the problem with Israel is they're basically, they, they have a choice in the book of Isaiah. You can either be inwardly faced, and you can be self-righteous and religious, or you can live out the plan that God has had for you since the foundation of the world, and that's to be a light to all the other nations. And what he's saying is that when Messiah comes, when, when the one who was born, who has come to save us from our sins, to deliver us, he comes not to just save Israel or to deliver Israel, but he comes to save and deliver people from every single tribe, tongue, and nation. And all of this culminates, right, in the New, New Testament. Let me read to you. Remember when the, shepherd, when the angels appeared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2? If you haven't read it, right, you've seen Charlie Brown, this is what Linus rehearses. And let me read it to you, Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
So the, the announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds sort of encapsulated everything that Isaiah is saying here, right? The expectation is that the humble will be exalted. Well, who do the angels go to? The angels go to the most humble in all society. And he said, they say to you, a Savior has been born. But who is this Savior for? It's not just for you. It's for all people, all nations. So the expectation of Advent is that the that, that expectations that the humble will be exalted, but also that the nations will be drawn in because this Savior has been born for all people. So that's the expectation. What is, what's the actual invitation? Why am I using that word? Because if you notice what the nations do as they come in is they invite people. In other words, the, you know, Presbyterians, we tend to think that God generally, ordinarily works through means. He could do miracles for sure, but typically he works through means. So how are the nations finding out about the fact that they can approach God on Mount Zion? How are they? Well, if you look at verse 3, it says, And many people should come and say, Come, let us go to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. So notice as the nations are drawn, they invite people as they're going along. Come with us. People, imagine, imagine people from Egypt streaming in to, to Israel. Why are you guys going to Israel? Just, you got to come and see. Come with us and see. You see, the way that God ordinarily works when he draws people to himself is actually through inviting. Did you know, actually, that's the, the purpose of the church? At least as we understand it, right? If you're, we have the thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith, and chapter 25, verse 3 says this, when it asks, what is the purpose of all these things that we do in church? And the answer is, it's for the gathering and the perfecting of the saints, it's so that we can gather in people. Some people, by the way, just don't know it yet. Our, our, our book of government for our denomination, it asks the question, what is the primary purpose of the church? And the answer is, the primary purpose of the church is the evangelization of the lost. That's why we exist. We, don't, we actually don't exist so we can have a safe place. We exist so that we can draw other people in so that they can hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus. It's all about inviting. The easiest way, if you want to be an evangelist, is to be an inviter. Notice one of my favorite passages, John chapter 1, when uh, Jesus calls Philip, and he wants his brother to, to know Jesus too. I'll read it to you. John chapter 1, verse 43. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's a skeptic, right? And Philip said to him, Come and see. That's it. Come and see. I could try and explain to you. I could argue with you about the passage that you just brought up, and I could argue about your skepticism, but the reality is just come and see. Come see for yourself. You know, I, I, I read the statistic recently, so I can't footnote it for you, but I think it's about 84% of people that become Christians, that don't grow up in Christian homes, become Christians because some person invited them to something. And so the question, right, the challenge for all of us at Advent is who are we inviting to something at Advent? Who are, we, are, we, are we inviting anyone to our home? 
Are we inviting anyone to the women's tea? Are we inviting anyone to church? All of church, by the way, is sort of built around the fact that when people come, they can, they can hear the gospel, but also have it explained to them. All it takes to be an evangelist is to be an inviter. And what it, the, how it works is we invite people, and then God does the rest. That was Nathaniel's thing. His brother said, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he says, come and see. And remember, Jesus sees him coming, and he says, oh, finally, a Jew in whom there is no guile. And he says, you've, seen, you've told me everything about me. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. He just changes in a heartbeat. Jesus is the one who does the work. We simply have to invite. And that leads us from, from the expectation of Advent to the invitation of Advent. It's all about inviting, but finally to the restoration of Advent. Notice it says in verse 4, it says, He shall judge between nations, and he shall, judge dis- he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So verse 4, it says, He shall judge be- between the nations. So when Messiah comes, he, uh, ultimately it says, He will judge between the nations, and the word there is to govern it doesn't mean he'll just sit there and judge and say, you're right and you're wrong. It says he, that he's going to govern the nations. And what's interesting is you notice what happens to their weapons. It says that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. What would you expect if Messiah was going to come and he was going to end war? If it was me, I'd say, okay, everyone, get, give me all your swords. Gather up all your swords. You're not going to need them anymore. Let's get rid of them. Let's take all your spears. Everyone who's got a spear, just take it. Everyone put it back in the closet back here. Let's just get rid of them. If you're not going to be at war, we don't need them. But what does he do? He takes the weapons of war and transforms them into something. Did you notice what they're transformed into? He transforms these. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Who uses a plowshare and who uses a pruning hook? Gardeners do. Farmers do. In, in other words, can you think of a garden in the Bible that's important? You see, what he says is when Messiah comes, all the things that we have used to harm and kill each other are going to be beaten into plowshares and pruning hooks in order for our original purpose to be restored. You see, back in the Garden of Eden when God created Adam and Eve, that state was called shalom or the way things are supposed to be. And what Isaiah is doing here is he's setting this vision that he has received and saying that when Messiah comes, he will begin to restore things to the way they are supposed to be. That these things are not supposed to be made for war. They're, in fact, supposed to be made for cultivation and for growth and restoration. And basically, what he's saying is, is the, the, what your heart longs for is finally going to be, re, be restored and to be revealed. You see, every person in this room desires some kind of, of the word I'm going to use is utopia. All of us have in our mind some sort of way things are supposed to be, right? Whether it's when you get home from work, everything's quiet, and, you know, you can find the television remote, and, you know, whatever it is your, your vision of rightness is, we all have some idea in our heart of the way we wish things were or the way things are supposed to be. And throughout history, that has been a thing, right? In 1516, Thomas More wrote a book called Utopia. That's where we get that term. He spelled it U-T-O-P-I-A. And it's really a play on words 
Because what utopia means in Greek, EU is good, and topia means place. Right? So utopia, if you hear it, you think, oh, that means good place. Unless you spell it OU, which it sounds the same, OU means no. So it could mean no place. What's the point here? Is that if you look throughout human history, there's been a lot of people who have attempted to, to establish different types of utopias, different types of created order where things actually work. And so some people, there are different, what different kinds of ecological utopias, right, where everyone's a vegan, and if we don't kill animals, and if we don't do this, then the planet will be saved. All that'll be fine. There's social utopias where everyone, if we think everyone, basically what a social utopia says, if we take all the isms and make them into wasms, that'll be awesome, right? And there's economic utopias, which basically say if we take everyone's money and we disperse it out equally, then everyone will be, everyone will be equal, and it'll be great. And then, of course, the flip side of that is capitalist utopia, which says if we just go to straight capitalism and everyone was based on merit, then the society would be great. And every single utopia fails because it has the same problem. The reason for the season. It's sin. The reason socialism doesn't work is because of sin. The reason capitalism doesn't work is because of sin. The reason ecological utopianism doesn't work is because of sin. All of us are sinful and broken and selfish and it doesn't work. And the only way that you can actually produce a utopia is with a eucatastrophe. And what do I mean by that? Eucatastrophe was a term J.R.R. Tolkien came up. You means good still, but catastrophe means bad. A good, bad thing. And what is the good, bad thing that ultimately will restore creation? Well, he'd say the good, bad thing is the death and the crucifixion and death of Jesus. You see, what he would say is a fairy story means is, a, is about a hero coming and trying to save uh, uh, someone in distress. In our case, that's us. And in the process of saving the person in distress, the hero dies or looks like he dies. And then he comes back from the dead and restores everything the way it's supposed to be. That's what Jesus does on our behalf. That because of the eucatastrophe, ultimately there will be utopia. There will be a place where things are the way they are supposed to be. And that's what Advent is all about. And so how does Jesus end the war that is talked about here? Basically, Jesus ends the war. How does Jesus bring peace? How is Messiah, this little baby born? He ends the war. He brings peace by becoming a casualty of war. That instead of fighting people, he gives himself up willingly. At the end of the day, that is at the center of Advent just as much as our sin. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we enter into this um, series, enter into the season of Advent, um, that we would begin to appreciate more and more the gospel of Christ on our behalf, but also I pray that we would uh, appreciate more and more um, our role in it as inviters. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.